take a minute because we've got so many on. There we go. Well, welcome to the Friday night U.S. Sangha. We've got quite a few today, and we've got a couple of questions. Actually, it's today because it's 10 a.m. here in Thailand for all of those flat earthers that are. And so um, today we're going to uh, talk about the Satipatthana and how it is, in fact, deeply related to the whole concept of rebirth and reincarnation and that kind of thing. So, Todd, your own. Thanks. So, yeah, I'm, I guess my question is in related to, so if I believed that there was literal reincarnation after this life, you know, I die, and then there are other realms that literally exist, and all of that. Then, which to is me, exactly the, the same thing as literally raising someone from the dead, right? And right, and if if I believe that to be factually not metaphorically true, then the most logical thing for me to do in this life would be to join, you know, become a monk devote every moment of my life to getting off of that wheel of samsara and that would be the most practical thing but ah wait a minute wait a minute yeah. wait a minute here for a second just for a second and then to continue sure. to get off of that wheel of samsara which means all of the samsara and all the wheels of the next lives and whatnot do you recognize that the thought of getting becoming a monk to get off the wheel of samsara is nothing but a concept. Yes. That's just a concept in your mind that you don't know anything about next lives. So totally. you believe that because you have heard it many times before and repetition is what causes patterns and we are pattern matching humans not wise, uh, truth-seeking humans. That's not part of our DNA. That's even the truth is certainly still and just an ideal as an ultimate truth, but that's an idealistic thing. Uh, but uh, a more clear-cut truth would be that uh, Skype, works on the internet it's owned by microsoft corporation that's facts right that's reality uh and we know that it's true because it's repeatedly seen over and over and over again that every time i come to the computer and click on that icon for skype it comes up with all of the history of my memory in fact the skype has a much better memory than I do. Okay. These are all clear facts. And you can see the repetitive part of that also. That Skype is samsara for old me. <laughs> and so the wheel of samsara that you're talking about is a concept that has been passed down through traditions. Now, I'd like to get kind of a show of hands, maybe a little poll. How many of you have ever heard of the Kalama Sutra? 
one, okay? It's in the Angutara. Uh, I think it's in the five. No, it's in the threes. And um, number 65 or something like that. So uh, the Kalama Sutta was, um, it's a very interesting word, Kalama, because one of the Buddha's teachers was Ala Kalama, who taught him the jhanas. And then he's out later. Um, probably his old teachers from this village. And so they've got kind of a special thing for him, even though he's never been to this village before. And when he he comes to this village, um, they ask him out of the confusion that they have heard so many stories before from so many different teachers and places, which is exactly the place now, Todd, that you're in of having heard all of this stuff from tradition, some books, uh, <clears throat> some people will say that they can do it in the sense of um, experiencing past lives or predicting future lives or coming back because they're a bodhisattva or they rain down and now have an Armageddon or whatever method that they're coming back. Some of them go up to heaven in horses and then come back down and own the uh, Temple Mount. Okay, so there's all kinds of stories from all kinds of traditions about all kinds of magical powers and magical powers are associated with other worlds, other realms, and other times in the present. Right? And we have no evidence of any of that kind of stuff. We have a whole lot of researchers who are doing everything they can to try to make it true. They try to prove it. There are um, uh, one particular channel, but there's several channels on um, television from the old days, the History Channel and the Learning Channel were the, the two. But on the History Channel, they would have on a regular basis hunting for UFOs with eerie music and all kinds of things. They never found one. They also, another show, had Ghostbusters. And they went to every haunted castle and every haunted house and every old prison that they could get their hands into, set up every piece of equipment they could think of, and let it grow dark and all of that. What makes a, a place spooky is how a person feels when they're there. And that's up to them. And cold, dark, damp places give us spooky feelings. And so because it gives us spooky feelings, we think there's a spook there. But no one has been able to find any spooks. And yet here we go with, the, uh, for instance, in the Pali language, the Prita, which is the spook in Pali. The hungry ghost. Okay. Um, and that that hungry ghost is hungry because there's no way for him to get filled up. And the analogy is with like a, uh, a balloon uh, or um, let us say a pot that looks like a balloon. That's a great big pot with a really, really tiny little spout in it. 
that in fact you've had, <clears throat> you've done that in opening packages that you'll open just a little bit and then you can't get anything out of that package because the hole is too small. Okay. But the Buddha uses that as an analogy of us wanting things that we can't have because our opening is too small. I have worked really hard trying to suck out of a soda straw a full-blown BMW motorcycle, a, a two different Mercedes, <laughs> a BMW uh, Touring International way back in the 60s. Wow, have I sucked a bunch of stuff through a soda straw. Never got any satisfaction. I've always found the metaphor. Can somebody help you? He's making a bunch of noise and it's kind of distracting. Or yeah, can Corey yourself? Yes, Sorry. I hear it too. Somebody is doing a bang and a bang. Ah, uh, Corey. Okay. Meanwhile, Todd, did you have a question interrupting oh. or? I'm sorry. No, I was just, I was just, when you took a pause, I was just going to say, I've, I've always found the metaphorical version like that to be really useful and, you know, practical and, and, and like a, a reasonable way of thinking about it outside of that. And there are just, you know, just to, to your point about not really having evidence, I think the closest thing that we had that ever gave me pause was, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, research that they've done at University of Virginia. There's a Dr. Uh, Ian Stevenson who who died, and then Dr. Jim Tucker, and they talk to children who remember these some past lives, and they do all this research to, and it's it's like the closest scientifically, you know, minded thing that gives me at least a little pause. That like, well, maybe okay. there is something there. But maybe there is something there. Maybe there is. And when he comes and slaps me in the face, I'll wake right up. <laughs> but only when it presents itself in reality. Now, here's several things going on with the various research. Is almost anyone who does not give a flying rip about that sort of research would not be doing that research. The only people who were doing that research is because of the people who were curious and interested in that, and they bring that curiosity and that interest to those children. Yeah. And those children want to please. Okay, the children want to please the adults. How many of you remember when you were children? Parker, you're pretty close. You remember pretty well. How <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. Uh-huh. We all, when we're little kids, try to please. And when people, this is in fact how traditions get started. Now, um, you, you know that Madeleine Albright just recently passed away. Do you know her history? Do, okay. Your, her history was is that she was the attorney general during the Clinton administration, but she had a um, um, a prior um, occupation that she was a um, a district attorney in Miami, Florida, 
And while she was there as the head DA, they had a number like 24 different cases of incestual rape of a child by a member of the family. And then when she was attorney general of the United States years later, these women from the 10 years when they were, you know, 11, 12, 14, and now they're in their 20s and they begin to uh, be able to communicate with each other. They all begin to recognize that they were talked into those accusations that Uncle Fred did it to me. All of them. And it was a combination of her putting an edict down. The cops were busting people. The social workers were coming in and doing their thing. Okay, this is our justice system. Is anybody who wants to have justice has their own agenda. Anybody who wants to prove something will do their best to prove it. So instead of looking at it's cause for concern because someone is doing some research and might find something because they're doing the research is not a reason to pause. It's a reason to giggle. <laughs> when you understand human nature. And since there is no evidence, I would very much like to see some evidence. In fact, to be honest with you, I had spent quite a number of years actively researching and searching for evidence. Took me all the way to India. I mean, you guys are almost just casually interested because you're casually on the internet. I was hardcore into it. Think about that. You know, mm -hmm. I went to not just to, to visit India, but I went and went and went and went and then went and stayed. And I was really into finding something, Todd, that you're just mildly curious about. Yeah. Um, but in fact, <clears throat> I think that that may be what it is uh, that that brings one to a very, very uh, practical state of having gotten over that is because we put so much effort into it and try to prove it. To ourselves that this is exactly what the buddha did that he was well known at the time to go to the very limits he went to the very limit of being a prince he was at the very limit of animal training of archery he was skilled at that kind of stuff he was also skilled in the Rig Vedas and he was skilled in uh, uh, the politics because of his dad. And, and he left all of that to become skilled at jhana and then eventually skilled at adversities. And he saw all of those skills that he had built up one on another, piling things on, getting himself to set of skills. He wound up with one particular or two particular skills left and that is that he had gone to the limit no one had gone as far as he had gone at least that was enough because some people have to go that far i didn't go quite that far but i because i got interrupted by bhikkhu buddhadasa and so um Going back to that story, hang on, Robert. 
hold your question. Going back to the story about the Kalamas, that's the story where the Buddha says, do not go by tradition or by what teachers say or because it is common knowledge or because it has, uh, uh, let's say, something logical in it that I like from my own cognition but rather that anything or everything one at a time needs to be investigated completely so that you have your own direct knowledge. And then the Buddha asked them some questions about that in the sense of um, instead of talking about reincarnation and rebirth, he would say then would you agree from your own knowledge and own investigation that you would not like to be murdered? And that all people would not like to be murdered. Therefore, killing people, taking the breath away from a human being would be something that you would avoid. You wouldn't participate in it. I don't think that on our, on our channel here, we have any active serial killers. We'll just take that as for granted. So, if you can understand that, then you can understand things for yourself going into them one by one. You don't like to get robbed. You don't like to have come home and find something that's just missing out of the house. And later you find out that the neighbor's kid was a kleptomaniac in the moment. Saw something you had and took it. All right. You don't like that getting ripped off. A lot of people don't like the government because the government, they think, rips them off by having taxes. Rather than thinking that that's just part of the territory. When you recognize yourself in the territory, uh, then we can get along. But when we think of it is mine and they take it from me, now saying that we don't like it. Right? Nobody likes to have things taken away from them. Right? Is that true? How about prices? Sometimes you think that the price is too high. Don't you think that's kind of then a ripoff? Don't they even call that a ripoff? But you're being robbed when you have to pay that high price, right? That's how you feel. So in that regard, would you also then believe then that it's in general not a good idea for you to go around ripping people off knowing how they will feel about it? Brandon, does that make sense to you? Yeah. Yeah, how about that, Miguel? Miguel? Yes. Yep, it does. Mm -hmm. Matt, checking in with you. I agree. All right. How about you, Parker? Do you agree that because you don't like getting ripped off, it's wise for you to not rip other people off? Yes, that sounds wise. Okay, how about you, Robert? Well, let's say you didn't care. Then would you then feel justified in ripping other people off? Ah, exactly. That is exactly wrong view because it is not taking everybody's point of view. It's taking a very selfish point of view. Sure. 
because you know that you did care and now you're pretending that you don't just so that you can justify that other people don't care so that it's okay for you to rip them out when deep in your heart you know that they do care because you do too. well well here's the funny thing if you really didn't care you also wouldn't care enough okay. to rip someone off uh, exactly <laughs> you're, you're yep. a step ahead of me <laughs> Yeah, you wouldn't even actually do anything. You would just, you know, it's fine. Mm hmm Exactly. So this is, in fact, what the Buddha did. I'm doing it a little bit more detail. But this is exactly what he did with the Kalama people. He went through the various um, precepts, asking them about it. That it is, is it wise? To be the town drunk? No. Therefore, abstaining from alcohol to the point of heedlessness is wise. Um, and so, if if we understand this, then we can say that wait a minute, each one of you has the wisdom to figure out what is the right way, the noble way to live your life. Naturally. You already know how high your standards could be if you'd stop setting standards and start living in a noble perspective of taking care of other people the way that you would like to get taken care of. This is, in fact, <clears throat> the major teaching of Jesus, which is spot on for Buddhism. This is what it's all about, in fact, that these are the precepts, is, is that we would keep these precepts um, not um, as a list of rules, but as examples of a state of mind. That's an important point that this is not a list of rules, but it's examples of a state of mind that then when we recognize how we would like to see the world. I'd like to see the world in perfect harmony. Therefore, this little world needs to be in harmony. That's the way that we look at it. And, and uh, then when we say, I'd like to see the world in harmony, that's either a concept about the great big wide world out there somewhere, which is exactly where rebirth and reincarnation is. It's out there someplace, and all we've heard is stories. A lot of stories, but all we've heard is stories. Where, in fact, we don't need those stories to help us behave correctly, which was the original point anyway. That the whole thing got started, and and um, my good friend Damavitu chases this down to about 800 BC, when the Brahmins were being confronted about them owning all of the land. This was about 300 years before the Buddha. And they says, oh, we do the rituals and all of that, and we own the religion because we are Brahmin. We are Brahmin because we were born Brahmin. 
But we were born Brahman because we deserve to be born Brahman because we were good in the past. And you were born something else. Which means you weren't as good as we were. Before. And that is the beginning of the story of Kama. And rebirth joined it to hip. That sounds like a ripoff. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> right. And that's exactly why all the churches are open. With their plate out. Because they want to make you afraid of. What's going to happen so far off into the future you don't have a clue about. In fact, we don't even know what's going to happen 10 minutes from now. Given Putin and Ukraine, we really don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And yet this is all what it's about is, oh, we're going to be able to out loud and in public control your behavior by making you afraid of something that's way off into the future. And some people want to have a heaven, but no hell. Don't like the idea of a hell. Why should God make a hell? All right. That makes no sense. A merciful God making a hell. How do they justify that one? So that's what happens with with these stories is they wind up having a whole lot of contradictions. Irreconcilable contradictions. But the truth is plain and simple. Facts. Yes, Robert. So I, I have a good one of those contradictions I discovered, and I've told some people in my life that are Catholic this. So if the Catholics say that all children that die go to heaven, wouldn't it then be in, in their best interest to kill them all? Wouldn't it be in the best interest, <laughs> according to the Catholic Church, just to murder all the kids? Because once they become adults, they might end up in hell. So just kill them while they're kids. Kill the babies. <laughs> just kill kill all of them. <laughs> Robert, I got to hand it to you. That's the best one I've heard. I've heard only the little piddly ones like, can God make a rock so big that he cannot pick it up? It's too heavy. <laughs> Without even getting off into the real physics of it is what makes something heavy? Yep. As opposed to how much it weighs, you've heard my story about that, that if you hold a coffee cup up, it's going to, even though when you hold it, when you pick it up, it, it doesn't feel that heavy. But if you hold it for a long time, it's going to get heavy. Just like our negative thoughts and negative emotions, we, things get heavy, things get important because of repetition over and over and over again. That's the samsara cycle, by the way, is the repetitiveness of things happening over and over and over again. And as they do, they get heavy. And so that means that we can wake up to that stuff and make a change. We can wake up when it gets heavy. 
That's one of the things that a lot of people don't quite understand. So maybe we can talk about it that in the sense of a wholesome thought versus an unwholesome thought is what makes a thought unwholesome is that it gets heavy. Now, some of them get heavy really fast. And some get heavy and heavy and heavy and heavy and heavy. Something like a project is, that a, a student is working on. It didn't, it wasn't heavy when he started it. But it got heavy over time. While he's sitting there. I mean, we're talking about something that happens about five minutes, not something that happens over months, which can happen also. Everything gets old. Everything gets heavy. Everything needs to be buried. That's why we call gravity and grave from the same root word. Things get really heavy. <clears throat> um, why do you think that it takes six pallbearers? Is because any corpse, any body that's getting buried that's dead is heavy. I, we don't understand that. I mean, it's, it's the same weight when you're standing on the scales, you know, like 183. Then you're dead, but that 183 now is really heavy. The streets of Kiev and, uh, and other uh, cities in Ukraine are littered with dead bodies. Why is that? Because they're too heavy. Look at all the work that it takes. Sanitation and transportation and disposals and all that kind of stuff. It's really heavy duty work, right? So that's the point then that when things get old, they get heavy. That brand new laptop, we really have to do about that. But when it gets old, we're beginning to think of wanting a new one. That it's slow and heavy. Okay. So, from that perspective, then, that's the samsara. Is the wheel actually slows down and gets really heavy. And if we can stand back and see these cycles and understand what's going on, we can get off that wheel of samsara rather than being stuck in it. And so, um, there's also another point that needs to be uh, put on this, and that is, is that those people who believe in rebirth and reincarnation, and it guides their, uh, let us say, uh, mental, spiritual growth, then it misguides it because it teaches them that uh, from that position of fear, because they believe the story, first off, they're delusional because they believe a story without any evidence. Then they sp spend quite a lot of time looking for the evidence. So they're wasting their time looking for the evidence. Not only that, but uh, the more important thing is, is that if they would uh, say, never mind about that, Let's start listening to what the Buddha teaches about. Let's be here now. We can figure out that it's not actually relevant to the spiritual practice. That chasing that kind of stuff is uh, time consuming and is off the mark. And 
uh, often when the students then begin to meditate, they're looking for past life experiences. They're looking for some experience. And when they have the experience, they don't understand the experience. And then they mislabel the experience as what it is that they wanted in the first place. So if somebody wants jhana, and then they have uh, a strange experience that they've never had before, they'll label that strange experience as jhana, and then they'll try to go get it again. And ever how they got it in the first place was not what's going to happen the next time because they're adding the new ingredient of now I know what I want and I got to go get it without knowing how they got it in the first place. <laughs> that in fact, the, the correct way of looking at it is, is that it's not an experience, but it's a sequence or series of experiences that's going to set a trail that you're living. The one experience in meditation is not the goal. Another experience is not the goal. But setting a trail to the point that now you're having one experience after another after another because you're awake enough to have experiences one after another. And none of them are important anymore because you've got that position of hot dog, I can have any experience I want anytime I want it because I've got the skills to do that. But we have to set these experiences in line so that we can see what's going on. In fact, Robert, do you remember the time when you were saying that you had a particular saying and when you heard it, it just jumped out at you and just slapped you in the face and woke you right up? Because you'd had that experience or that same cliche over and over and over again, and finally it dawned on what it, what it meant at a, yeah. in a really big way. And so you a hot dog, go tell your dad about it, and it means nothing to him. No, right. it was just not far enough along the line of having the event happen one time after another after another. And so this is one of the reasons why you hear me, um, let us say, repeating and harping on and on about harping on and on about repetition on and on. But that's what makes music. Is the repetition. The meter. The cadence. And so we have to be able to set that. And as we set that, now it come, kind of dawns on us or the insight comes to see what's really going on because we're setting things over and over again back upright in a wholesome way. If we continue to allow the mind into hindrances, then that will be our perspective and we'll see the same things that we've all been ways been seeing before. So it takes first off the mind to be set upright. In the sense of having only wholesome thoughts about this particular moment, about what's happening right now, and then the insight comes into the distinction of when an unwholesome thought arises, we can say, oh yeah, that's the dukkha. And so I can set that down and come back into a wholesome state. And so all of our insights wind up being recognizing or the, the uh, let us say the path of the skill levels of working is to figure out what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. 
And by repeating it over and over and over again, everything winds up being dukkha <laughs> because it gets old. <laughs> the question is, how far down does it have to go before you can say, I'm going to let this one go? Now, one of the ways that they talk about it in AA is called hitting rock bottom. Many alcoholics will not go to AA until they hit rock bottom, and sometimes the court determines what's rock bottom. All right? But the point is, is that if we are gaining skills, our rock bottoms doesn't have to be so rocky, and it doesn't have to be so deeply bottom. But sometimes the surface of the ground can be our rock bottom. We don't have to dig deep. And sometimes three feet off the ground can become our rock bottom. In other words, when we begin to get fewer and fewer and fewer hindrances, our rock bottoms are at a much higher standard than they used to be. Only because that's the only standard now that we have is the standard of dukkha, dukkha, naroda. Is this dukkha or not? And the better at it that we get, then the quicker we can see it in its mild form. And then we can get rid of it easily enough to where your life becomes easy all the time. <laughs> Robert. Sure. So this brings us back to one of our earlier points about the Buddha trying out kind of different methods and going to extremes. Um, you know, and I've done a bit of that myself. You know, I had a period where I was just extremely highly intellectual, you know, all the time. And then I had a period after that where I was extremely emotionally expressive and just really allowed myself to express all my emotions, you know. And um, that second period was way more chaotic than the first period, but I still felt it was beneficial and I would never do it again. But it was beneficial in terms of I felt I allowed myself to feel more than I had before. And I felt I had a deeper understanding of myself and my own dukkha, you know, such that, you know, I can reflect back on that time as like a positive learning experience of, oh, I'm not going to do those things again. Actually, that um, um, in psychology within TA can often be thought of as flat um, uh, effect or that it's the rigid adult that only the facts count. There's no emotion, there's nothing to life, it's only the facts, whatever I'm reading, if I'm philosophy major, then it's only the philosophy and that kind of stuff. Uh, and it's kind of rigid. And so moving out of that, the, prop, the proper place for people to move would be to the actual opposite of that, which mm -hmm. is then all emotions all the time, which means now let's go ahead and let the um, uh, the instincts run wild. Right. And then now it's time to find a balance back to the middle past so that you can use that highly intellectual and well-trained adult to start to manage this child. <laughs> so sure. that you can come into harmony with yourself. Sure. Which I think is what I've been doing, you know, the last year you know, year and a half, um, 
you know, a um, little more than a year, I guess, year and a couple of months since you and I started talking. I think that process has really uh, come together for me, you know, because I was right on the tail end of the emotional <laughs> expression era. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, you know, and I see it as foolish now, but it had a lot of good learning experiences for me, too. You know, and, and it's kind of like I feel travel is similar. You know, like you can say, yes, travel doesn't really mean mean, mean that much in the scheme of Duca, Duca Naroda. But nonetheless, you can still gain certain teachings and benefits from just having had those experiences, being able to talk about them and help other people, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so. Well, let's change the topic uh, now back over to Brandon's question on the Satipatthana. Todd, I think that we have covered um, the point about uh, rebirth and reincarnation is actually irrelevant to the correct practice, and that when it becomes relevant, it becomes a hindrance. And the next point is, is that if you can get your life cleaned up in this life, so that you're happy and and as they say, well adjusted, that you have uh, joy for life, then you can have that at the point of death, at the time of death. You can accept death because you've been able to handle anything else. You can handle that too, and then you're dead. What happens after that, if that's your mentality, the last moment that you have, that's probably the mentality you're going to wake up in the next life if you ever do wake up. That would be a heavenly death, which then would be a heavenly rebirth. This is one of the reasons why Buddhism is very big on your last mind moment. What is in your mind as you die is what you will be having. The next thought after that will be when you become reborn. Well, if you can develop that sort of mind state before you die so that when you die, you can be in that mind state, then that's what the practice is all about. If we can die happily, then we can live happily. If we are afraid of death, then we will be afraid in life. And here this whole business about reincarnation is based upon making people afraid to die. That, that's a beautiful clarification. Thank you. Okay. So, the Satipatthana, the first word of that is the word Sati, which is all about this waking up to this cycle, right? To be here now. Um, to when we hit rock bottom, what happens when we hit rock bottom? When we go on to skid row, what happens? We skid. When we hit rock bottom, we hit. That's <laughs> and that that hit then um, is a push or pasa that wakes us up into a feeling state. That's the whole point of the Satipatthana is to understand that there are um, the sati is the hit or what it is that wakes us up. And if we can practice to do that at a subtle level, because we're continuing to wake up and continuing to wake up, 
continuing to wake up and continuing to wake up, then that develops that habit of being it waking up on a regular basis over and over and over again. Because that's part of the cycle. A lot of the Westerners say, oh, when I wake up, I'm going to stay awake. And that's like saying you're going to stop a cycle of life. Don't count on that one. No, what we need to practice is the waking up, not staying awake. I mean, how many of you have ever woke, uh, tried to stay awake 36, 48 hours? I mean, and not had sleep? Computer scientists and engineers and mathematicians and that kind of breed uh, do that on a regular basis, sometimes radio announcers. Most people, they sleep once a day. But weird people like me can go 36 hours and then we crash, really big time crash. Yes, Robert. Uh, do you think the Dhamma can get stale or boring? It does get stale and boring. Never mind, start again, kick started again. Recognize the staleness and the boredom. That's the whole point is wakey, wakey, let this hit you. Because it's not the Dhamma that's stale and boring, it's the mind and this, this grabbing and holding and squeezing and muscling the Dhamma. That's what gets stale and boring. The Dhamma is just Dhamma. It's the mind that gets stale and bored, and the mind can get stale and bored on anything, mm. including the Dhamma. Mm. And it's not the Dhamma or the, uh, the hot chick that's stale and boring. It's the mind that is stuck on it. Mm. So... The staleness and the boredom is what we're talking about. This is the pasta. When do you hit rock bottom? What is your rock bottom? Staling, stale and boredom, that's your rock bottom. And you hit that rock bottom. <laughs> so this is the whole point about waking up to that. Waking up to see that this cup is heavy, set it down. Wake, wake up to recognize that the backpack of all of these memories that you've been carrying has gotten heavy and you can either take one out and throw it away one at a time looking for the heavy objects and throwing them out first. Or you just set the whole garbage bag down. Up to you. Now that's terrifying for a lot of people to set the whole bag down. I want to keep a few bottles. <laughs> <laughs> until they too get heavy. And how do you recognize that they've gotten heavy? That's the wake up, that's the sake, is to recognize the dukkha, to recognize when things have gotten heavy. So the whole quality of anapanasati is, the anapana is to help develop this sati so that we can wake up to what's going on to see what is heavy. Now, the whole point then is the patana. What is uh, sati patana? The word patana, uh, uh, probably the easiest word that we have for that would be the pedal of a bicycle. Uh, a footing. A, they call it foundation, but foundations we almost always think of as stone. Great big foundations on great big, architecture, right? That's the foundation. 
better word to talk about is getting your footing. And so where where are the things that we can let us say grab hold of or the things that we can actually put there? Now this comes out of the four elements, the original four elements that was well known throughout the world. It's in Chinese, it's in the Greek, it was in the uh, Indian uh, traditions that there were four foundations <clears throat> or four aspects to reality, and that was solid, liquid, air, and a strange thing called fire. You know that fire is a different element because you can touch the ground and it doesn't touch you back. You can touch the air and it doesn't touch you back. You can touch the water. You feel the temperature, it doesn't touch you back. You touch fire and it's going to touch you right back. So it's one of the elements. And that um, the Buddha in his remarkable understanding this is actually quite remarkable when you think about it because everyone in that time was oriented towards an outside world other worlds other heavens other places rebirth here there all over the place you know great big reality kind of worlds and we saw the elements in the same way earth fire water, there. The Buddha turned those things around and put them on the inside. And says, no, the foundations of your reality, the foundations of your existence is these four elements that you have within. That is the body, the feelings, this mind that's burning for many most of us are burning by day and smoldering by night. And that output, that smoke, then is the thoughts or the fuel that we have. And so that gives us the Kaya Nupassana, the Veda Nupassana, the Chitta Nupassana, and the Sita, and the uh, Dhamma Nupassana are the four foundations of mindfulness, which have to do with the body being solid, the emotions being fluid and liquid. And in fact, the, the, the emotions and the fluid and the liquid in ancient times was associated with blood. Because when you get emotional enough, there's going to be blood, right? So blood must be the source of uh, emotions. And that's from uh, menstrual cycles to wounds spilling your guts, all kinds of things. So there's that all that liquid stuff that's in the body as well as uh, the, the solid stuff, the muscles, the uh, 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 bone, uh, that kind of stuff. So we have that in there, but we also have this fire within. This ability that what can be referred to as consciousness. And that stuff is very weird, this consciousness stuff. Because it's got various forms that, in fact, there's two different word ways of using the word consciousness. And one would be the way in the sense of the sense organs themselves, taking the sense, 
and uh, the object and putting them together. An example would be um, that if you had a white ox and a black ox and you tied them together, then which is the fetter of which? Is the white ox the fetter of the black ox or is the black ox the fetter of the white ox? I ask you. Or is it something else? Sounds like the rope is the fetter. You got it. That's exactly right. It's not the white ox, it's the fetter of the black ox. It's not the black ox, it's the fetter of the white ox. The fetter is the thing that ties them together. What is it that ties things together in your own mind? This is the consciousness that ties the sense object out there and the eye together to make a union of something. It's a fetter between the eye and the object. And that fetter is what we call seeing in this consciousness. But there's another kind of consciousness, which is a different kind of a fetter. And that is it's the combination or the outcome of the consciousness taking an input, having it then processed with old past events and garbage from the past to present a new kind of consciousness. Okay, that we can say in the sense of I see what you mean. I see a tree that's direct. But in fact, by calling it a tree, I've had to process it, make it into a concept, give you that concept, you deconstruct that concept into the image of a tree, which is probably not at all the tree that I see. And so when I say I see what you mean, then <laughs> we may not be on the same ticket at all. This is lost in translation, lost in communication, lost in conceptual thought. So this is the whole point about the Satipatthana is that it is the mind, the sita, that connects the body and the feelings and all of that stuff together to come up with something new, and that is the fire. But that fire gives off smoke. And how we learned what the fire is, is by studying the smoke. We start studying the thoughts that are the process or the smoke that comes out of the mind, which is basically uh, the fetter between the body and the feelings. So this is a new way of looking at the Satipatthana. And so when we do this practice, we do this with Anapanasati is to start to unravel this system by learning to control the mind, by controlling what kind of smoke we're going to be putting out. And that helps determine what kind of fire it's going to be in the sense that we're no longer having hindrances. Now we're beginning to control the mind rather than let it run rampant and burn anything down. We're going to keep it to a kind of a fireplace of wholesomeness. 
And with that fireplace of wholesomeness, we're going to now start working with the body. Start working with the breathing, start understanding the body, start finding out where the body's tensions are, where the emotions and the body are interconnecting with each other. And then with the body relaxed and the mind in uh, control and relaxed, we can begin to then manage the kind of feelings that we want to have. So rather than choosing dukkha or dissatisfaction or not liking things, we can begin to condition the mind so that we're satisfied. We don't want anything. We're good to go, safe, secure, comfortable, satisfied over and over again. And then comes the next one, which is um, success. I got it. And that success is the integration in this moment of the mind and the body and the feelings producing some pretty nice incense. Yes, Robert. So uh, two questions and they're related. So one is what what are your thoughts on the statement that consciousness creates reality and and two is, um, what are your thoughts on the idea that we're all connected in some kind of universal consciousness? Uh, that's a concept. Connected as a universal consciousness is a metaphor for the fact that we're actually physically, scientifically, logically, and in any kind of measurement be connected together. It's absolute. You can just see it when you've got the right way of looking. It's not a concept, but it is a concept when you call it consciousness, because it's not conscious in that way. It's conscious at a much deeper level. So that's the, the first point. Um, uh, could you describe what you mean by deeper level? Uh, down below DNA, down to the level of uh, molecules and um, um, string theory, quarks, gluons, um, Higgs fields, occasional bosons, that kind of stuff. That's what I mean by deep. I'm talking about tiny, microscopic, well below uh, nanoparticles. Mm. And we're all the same. And and why do you think we have this sense of being a NI, right? Like that's kind of the hard problem of consciousness. Like why are we, why do we have self-awareness? You know, what's the... You what know, a ridiculously look- stupid question. <laughs> What a ridiculously stupid question. That's almost like going to the garbage dump, finding a perfectly working uh, laptop computer and asking the question, why would someone throw this away? That's a ridiculous question to ask. Much better question is, hot dog, how much can I get for this thing? Sure. (laughs) So. Instead of, and that's a ridiculous question to ask where consciousness comes from. The really question is, what are you going to do with it? 
Going to make yourself miserable? That's what you've been doing. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So, so then for the second question, consciousness creates reality. What are your thoughts on, on that? Well, for most people who are unconscious, that's right. Their perception or their ideas or their rights, rules, and traditions and things that they have been told, their rule systems, their silabata paramasa, their beliefs in rebirth and reincarnation and heavens and hells and Jesus and spooks and gods and devils and Mohammeds and it goes on and on to Krishna's and <laughs> Rupas and, and Ramas and <sighs> Kali's and Durgas and it just goes on and on and on and on and that's the reality for so many people and it's just merely conceptualizations. The Sears Tower in Chicago was merely a concept. It was an imagination. And out of that imagination came drawings. And out of that those drawings came a whole lot of arguments. And out of a whole lot of arguments came a whole lot of money. Out of a whole lot of money came a whole lot of people and a whole lot of construction equipment. And eventually, a whole lot of building. All of it conceptualized. It was coming out of consciousness into reality. Now, that's it. That's the whole point. Is that, but when you understand that, then you can recognize that there is an actual reality out there that is immediately available to us if we would just look and experience it directly rather than conceptualizing about it into existence. So So, it's right here in front of us that when we are conceptualizing all the way through the building of the Sears Tower, there's dukkha along the way from the idea of it to the writing it down to the all of those things, blah, blah. And then after the building is finished, it's still just more dukkha. The elevator's break or the, the toilet on the 19th floor is stopped up <laughs> or whatever it is. It, there is just all of this dukkha associated with the conceptualized world. But when you stop conceptualizing and just be in reality of the moment, that's where you're going to find peace and quiet and happiness and joy and satisfaction and comfort. The fears are all mental. Reality is peaceful. So maybe a better way of restating that statement would be consciousness creates some reality, but not even close to all of it. Uh, okay. Uh, I mean, it led to the Sears Tower and it created some dukkha for some people, but it, uh, there are many other things that just exist that are not necessarily. Remember that the Sears Tower or any other high scraper can only come into existence due to a great deal of dukkha. Hmm. All along the way, people were dissatisfied with the stage that it was in, and they wanted to take it to the next stage. They struggled to get it to the next stage. 
And they so they got it to the next stage. And when they got it to that next stage, then they wanted the stage after that. And there was no end to the struggling. And in fact, now the Sears Tower is quite old. So now perhaps, they're really struggling with it. <laughs> yeah, but perhaps they were really enthusiastic about it. Like, yeah, let's make the Sears Tower. Isn't this great? Let's really enjoy this. They needed you in their PR department, let's, didn't let's they? Really <laughs> yeah, let's guys building the Sears Tower. You know? <laughs> yes, Robert, they needed you in their PR department. Let's go, sis, boom, ba, ra, ra, sis, boom, ba, kyrie, elation, in excelsis, deo. Yes, that's exactly right. You need a, uh, a, a cheerleader. Yeah. Absolutely, got to get those group that group up. Otherwise, they'll walk off the, of the field in dispute and despair. And that's what the, teach, the teaching of the Buddha is all about: is walk off the field joyfully. You don't have to walk off the field in despair. <laughs> well, you can also stay on the field joyfully too. You know, uh, of your choice. So you can come back onto the field. The question is, can you walk off the field and at least find joy after you walk off the field? Because if you can't find joy walking off the field and being off the field, you're not going to find joy on the field. This last, it gets heavy quickly. Mm, so you have to be able to find joy in either direction, on or off. Right. We have to actually find the joy when things are lightweight. It's really hard to be joyful when things are heavy. And things are heavy when we do them over and over and over again. So we need to practice doing things that are very lightweight over and over again. But it becomes pretty easy to do. You know, there's a very famous novel called The Unbearable Lightness of Being. And one of the ideas is you know existence is so fleeting and that so there is so much impermanence that the impermanence itself is unbearable but i think that's wrong i think the impermanence actually is great you know mm -hmm. right well that's just an attitude and people with attitudes write all kinds of books yes. every politician writes a book because they've got an attitude and they sell it to people who have an attitude well, what's unbearable is impermanence plus grasping and clinging. If it's plus just right, exactly. That's the yoke. The grasping and the clinging is the yoke, not the impermanence. Right. So then it goes from being the unbearable lightness of being to the lightness of being, which mm -hmm. sounds a lot better. Because you have to be able to remove that yoke that binds two things together so that you can allow the mind or the eye to be the eye and the object to be the object without having to tie them together as something important. Right. So that, that's uh, uh, now we can say we do have choiceless awareness. Finally, why is it choiceless? Because we just allow what the eyes to see as the sight that's being seen without having to tie them together into something important with the mind. You know, it's, it, it's interesting 
This is kind of tangent, but you know, one thing I've noticed about the repetition of the Dhamma is eventually it becomes kind of like autopilot to some degree, more and more and more. New and habits. New habits. Replace yeah. the old. So now yeah. you begin to get in the habit of never mind, start again. Then you get into the habit of wow, I can handle this. Then you can yeah. get into the position and, and it becomes just quite natural operating position. <laughs> and even that softens into Oh, and that's your normal position. Oh, yeah, I got that. <laughs> sure. But look at the fact that you've been generating habits all along and you've gotten yourself into the habit of, oh, no, here it comes again. Or, oh, no, what would happen if that happened? Looking for trouble. That's an interesting thing. You've heard the song looking for love in all the wrong places. A lot of the time we're not looking for love in all the wrong places. We're looking for trouble in all the wrong places. <laughs> we're saying, oh, no, what could go wrong? And so they're out there looking for trouble. Hmm. Still you know, you've got no troubles. There's nothing wrong. Everything is all right. Everything is fine. But that becomes a habit only by repeating it over and over again. Otherwise, the old habit of looking for trouble. And we go looking for trouble because of the fear. I mean, why am I afraid? I got to go find out what's going on. Why am I afraid? When you're not afraid, then you don't have to go find things to put the trouble. You can just enjoy. So one's a, one's a habit. And then we begin to counteract that habit. And now we have a new habit. Sure. But the habits you're going to have, I mean, this is what the samsara, another word for samsara is the word habit. Just over and over and over again, repetitive habit, habitual. You can hear the word habitual and the word samsara and say, yeah, that's exactly it. That's what samsara is, is habitual behavior. over and over and over again. But when we're caught on the cycle, when we're in there, then when we're at this point and we like it, then it goes to here and we don't like it. Then it goes to here and we like it. And then it goes to here and we don't like it. And around and around it goes. Or maybe there's only one point in the cycle that we like and the whole rest of the cycle, we don't like it. And so we keep hoping for that one point of the cycle where we feel good. And then we have to go back into not feeling good and come around again to the cycle of feeling good. But when you can draw away from that whole habitual cycle and take a look at it from the outside, now we can say, oh, that's who I am. That stupid cycle that I'm on, that's the habit pattern. That's the, that's the, the ritual. That's the way that we're doing things. And we can change it. And how we change it is just one point. Change that one thought. Keep changing it from the unwholesome thought that's in a cycle into wholesome thoughts and get a wholesome cycle going. Hmm. Well, it, it seems to me, too, that through repeated practice, there's kind of a dampening, you know, of, of dukkha, where dukkha may emerge, but it, it is much, it isn't as strong. It doesn't taste as quite as salty as it once did, but it still might emerge. 
um, which I find interesting. You know, it feels much more damp, like a cooled down, reduced version of the same phenomenon, if that makes sense. You know, it's like softer, you know. Mm -hmm. And is that... Oh, sorry. Commodore, it's good to see you. I, I notice you've been lurking with your camera off up in the corner for a while. Yeah, yeah. My uh, my son was was he has a cough, so it took him a while to get to sleep, but now he's good. Ah. <laughs> uh, we were talking about um, the Satipatthana and the way that there's the interaction of the body, the feeling, the mind, and uh, the outcome of the mind, or the Dhamma-Nupasana, or what we make of it. So the reality, Robert, is the input and uh, what we make of reality is the output. That's an interesting way of looking at it. And so most of the people uh, live in their own output. They live in their own world. They don't live in the world of their senses. They live, they live in the world of concepts and ideas. And they don't pay much attention to what's going on in reality around them. And one of the ways of talking about that is that the closer we are to actual reality, then the less dukkha. And the further away from that reality, the actual reality, which is a mental reality, the further that reality is from actual reality, the more dukkha there's going to be. And so in order to eliminate dukkha is to come closer and closer to actual reality. And the only real actual reality that's happening is happening right here, right now with your senses. So sitting in the room that you're in, looking at the screen that you're in, but not just what's on the screen, but the fact that there's borders around the screen, there's keyboards, there's other appliances and all of that, and that's the environment that you live in, but also the environment of the clothing that you've got on and everything that contacts you. So the little environment of the room that you're in is your world. And when you're in that world, that world is a safe world. Everybody wants to have a room of their own because they feel safe there. You're alone. No snakes, no alligators, no mother-in-laws, no sisters, no children, nothing. And so we can be on our own. And some people even call that to be themselves. But most people, when they get alone, they wind up just staying in a conceptualized world anyway. They don't stay in the room that they're in they wander out of that room in their mind and going off someplace else. When you go off someplace else, you're in 
now your own little world, except that it's not a, uh, your own little world at all. It's just mental concepts. And so you live in a mentally constructed world. And the philosophers have known about that for centuries, many long time, to recognize that humans don't live in reality. They don't live in a world uh, that every one of them lives in their own mentally constructed reality. That's why we argue and fight with each other so much. If we all lived in the same real world of the environment that we were in, we would all live very happily and uh, uh, in commune, and we wouldn't argue over uh, distinctions or differences in beliefs or any of that kind of stuff. We would just be hanging out and having a ball together if we lived in reality. It's when we live in a world of wants and desires that we have so much conflict. Oh, Scott, welcome back. Hey. <laughs> so this is a way of, of beginning to understand that, yeah, it's good to get away from other people because other people are living in their own mentally constructed world. You get away from it all, just like each one of you have gotten away from it all by going into your room and, and being alone. But then the thing to do is to now that you're away from all of those people who are in their mentally constructed world, you can start to come out of your own mentally constructed world and into the world of the reality of the moment. Which has to do with the body that you're in and the breathing that you're doing and the touch of the butt and the way that the chair sits and the breeze and the touch of the cloth and the breathing. And this is the way of getting started. And then later we begin to start looking at how the mind itself works, because that's what's doing all the construction of the reality anyway. Yes, Robert. So I think one reason people don't like to live in the present moment is because they are actually afraid of giving up on the mentally constructed reality that they have. It provides a sense of security because it's all they've known and they are simply afraid to give that up and they feel that they will be lost. You know, they will be adrift in the sea, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Without the guidance of their own past. So they let their, their past be their thought rather than letting this present moment be presented as itself as it is. We have to guide our way through, and that's based upon fear. In fact, the point is fear, not where the fear came from. That fear wants to keep us in a uh, conceptualized mindset because we got to find the problem of why I feel afraid so that we can fix that problem. It's always the one-two punch, or if we, in other words, to come to the point of being having no fear has to have an intermediate step. I've got to go do something to get rid of the fear, so now I can feel not afraid. So I've got to spend all of that time figuring out what it is that I've got to do to make myself not afraid. Maybe I got to go pay all my bills, or I've got to go uh, get the dog to the clinic, or I've got to go put gas in the car, I've got to go grocery shopping, you know, all of those things that we think of 
that need to be done in order for us to feel safe and satisfied. But there's no end to that list because those things don't end the fear. We got to start to deal with the fear directly. And the way that we can do that is in this present moment when the fear comes up and people call it fear, anxiety, stress, tiredness, a sinking feeling, all kinds of ways that we talk about it. We need to see that immediately and to recognize that that has been caused by the we're feeling as if we lived in a constructed reality rather than the reality that we actually live in. So now it's time to wake up to that fear and to recognize that we have constructed something that we have created that fear with. If I now change my mind into wholesome thoughts, I can deconstruct that construction of the fear. I can literally talk myself back into feeling good because I've already constructed a situation or talked myself into feeling bad. That's why the fear is here now. It's because we talked ourselves into it with our concepts. So talking ourselves into feeling good, getting those wholesome thoughts back into the mind. Wholesome thought, wholesome thought. Wow, this is nice. Wow, I've got no alligators on the porch. Wow, I can handle the mosquitoes. Wow, this is great. Wow, my life is so good. Got everything we need. Not a problem in the world. Gosh, it's so great. These are the kind of thoughts that you could have. Congratulate yourself for having a marvelous existence, and then you have a marvelous existence. When you complain about the rat hole existence that you have, then you've got a rat hole existence. Up to you. This is what the Buddha means by wholesome thoughts. Have a few wholesome thoughts. But everything really is so nice. As it is, reality is good. Our constructed mentality about reality is almost always gone. So, Todd, that's a good reason to not construct a lot of constructs about rebirth and reincarnation and all of that kind of stuff. Because it's just concepts that keeps you out of being here now in the reality that is actually the only place that you can find in all of those stories that's safe and secure is this present moment with this breath. Taking this breath, you're still alive. Still got consciousness. Never mind where that consciousness came from, Robert. You've got it right here, right now. Enjoy it. It's precious. So, guys, this has been a really nice talk. I've got I've got a few things off my chest. <laughs> Anybody got anything to say, Scott? 
Uh, yeah, uh, I just want to say I was stealing some of your like uh, some of the things you say. Like uh, earlier today, I was sitting next to someone, and we were both just sitting there. And then I noticed that like how uncomfortable someone is with just sitting and not doing anything. Like they're just like it, they gotta look at their phone or like like something fidgeting or something. And I'm just like, all right, she needs to just calm down. So I'm just like, I started talking about. I started talking about the breath and like, oh, how I was like, oh, you should try it just like 20 minutes a day. You should just sit and not do anything and like, oh, just feel how good it feels to breathe and then feel the shirt against your skin and just feel what it's like to be in a body in this moment. And then that that kind of takes you out of concepts and stuff like that. And like, um, I don't remember exactly what I said, but definitely it was really helpful, like the things you said to me. And I, I was just like relaying that. Cause it, it works. It like works. It, 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 like my body was just feeling like so good. And like the moment was, I mean, yeah, that's it. It's amazing, isn't it? This practice actually has benefits very quickly. It's good in the beginning. For some reason, Western Buddhism, the way that its meditation is practiced is often not good in the beginning, is really ferocious in the middle. And we're not sure whatever the outcome is because nobody's ever gotten that far. <laughs> but the actual teachings of the Buddha, by doing this whole business of coming out of the past, out of the wrong, wanting, the longing of getting, um, the experience of past lives or attainments of Sotapan and all of that kind of stuff. The real teaching of the Buddha is, hey, just look at what you're doing and chill. Also, another thing is I'm getting better at is noticing there are a lot of unwholesome thoughts that before I would have thought were neutral or like i wouldn't have thought of them as unwholesome but now that like now that i'm feeling so good you could recognize something that it's not it's not it's not in the moment even if it's like like kind of innocent thought like oh i was feeling just good just then a couple seconds ago that's unwholesome because as soon as you like <laughs> say that like you were feeling good you're not feeling good anymore because you're, mm -hmm. you're not enjoying it. So, like, something like that, it's like a thought, but it's kind of, like, I recognize that, oh, there's another one. And then, so. Good awakening. That's the way of practice. You keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back. And you recognize you begin to build a new pattern. Begin to get the attitude, you can do this. You've got a new, you've got things rolling now. And so uh, there's no end to the success of it. Once you've changed that attitude and, and continue to change it over and over and over again, it takes a while. But every time that you practice, that's just one more drop in the bucket, just one more uh, bending of that limb, uh, changing that habit. And pretty soon we've got something new going on. And then 
occasionally there's going to be a major hiccup or something. Reality slaps you in the face and then we'll go back into our conceptualized world of trying to solve it because we feel bad. Rather than remembering that, hey, I can handle anything that happens. Let me go ahead and get rid of this fear again. Never mind, start again. Come back and get back into a good state over and over again. And it becomes a habit. So there's not much to it. Just keep at it. Just keep practicing over and over again. Practicing being friends with the one on the inside. Practice bringing the mind into a state of wholeness, into unity, into nurturing. Recognizing that conceptualized thought is just merely conceptualized thought. You don't have to hate it or feel bad because you've been conceptualizing, but better to recognize the value of conceptualized thinking and the value of being able to set it down. Yeah, another thing is that the spaces in between thoughts can, are getting longer and it's um, there's less and less danger that the next thought that comes up is going to be unwholesome. So it could be a longer space like you're talking about. So I'm just trying, instead of like keep keeping up the wholesome uh, thoughts to see what happens if, if I don't have any thoughts and then see what happens when the next thought comes up. Uh, unwholesome thoughts are very hard to melt away because they're almost always hard and heavy. But wholesome thoughts get pretty lightweight. They get very, very airy, very fluffy and kind of non-substantial. So that it's no longer even verbal. It's more of a... Uh, 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 Proto-thought. Right. I don't know what that sound is. The sound of the sigh of relief. <laughs> The sound of silence, the sound of one hand clapping, the sound of. Oh. <laughs> it's hard to talk about. But you understand what I mean, right? Gaps in there, put some real gaps in. Yeah, um, I find that you can like there is a sort of thinking that continues, but it's not it's not like uh, it doesn't have a language to it. It doesn't have a like uh, specific words attached to that thinking, but there's still there's still uh, thinking going on. But it, it is it, it's in its like very uh, ephemeral form. So it's how like, about how yeah. about it's observational rather than didactic thought? In other words, it's not verbal thought or verbal words being used but that it is observational. For instance, when you're actually listening to music, you're not thinking. When you're actually listening to music, you're spending your mind moment in a different kind of thought. An example of that is the cicadas are on right now. Do you hear them through the microphone here? Some of the students can't. Okay, they've got kind of a, a musical tone to it, but they're real. Okay, and so how you listen to that is without words. 
that in fact, when students are listening to the to the Dhamma talks, when they're listening, they're not forming questions or not forming words. But in fact, then you could say that when a question is asked, that's a conceptualized state that the student was in in order to create his question. And it was almost always due to a feeling that occurred through listening. So when we use the word thinking, almost always in the English, we think about that there's only one kind of thinking, and that is uh, verbal diarrhea or um, didactic or discursive thought. That's another term that's used for it, discursive thought. But if that's the only kind of thinking that we were doing, then we wouldn't be able to use our senses at all. You couldn't drive an automobile if all you had, the only kind of thinking you did was discursive thought. No, you have to think about getting into the car, but you don't think about it in the sense of words. Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to have a verbal dialogue of the entire process of getting into the car. You just do it and you see what you're doing and you're thinking about what you're doing, but you're not having a verbal dialogue about it. Yeah, that's another thing um, I realized is that there's so many things going on in this moment that usually we aren't aware of. But when we wake up, we realize that this moment is rich. It's because like, that's what boredom is, is thinking this moment isn't un is uninteresting. So we think that this moment is uninteresting, so we have to fill the void or fill, like hungry ghosts. But but if we if we wake up at this moment, like we see that it's rich with activities, like all kinds of things that are just not that are beyond like the normal scope of thinking and emotion that we usually limit ourselves to. That's right. Okay, so now that you're waking up to that, start to pay attention to how much of the time is in discursive thought and how much of the time is in observational thought. And start spending more and more time in observational thought and less time in discursive thought. And that observational thought then can also have the qualities of nurturing and the quality of peacefulness, relaxation, but the discursive thought will almost always be bringing on tension and heat and work to be done and that kind of stuff. And so coming out of that discursive thought into observational thought is exactly what Anapanasati is all about. Start being mindful of the breathing and mindful of the way that you feel. That mindfulness there, then, that sati means is that we remember to change the way that we think from critical, didactic, discursive thought into observational thinking. It is wordless, has no, has no, um, has no verbal language that we can discuss in. This is exactly why in the Tao Te Ching, it says the Tao that can be said is not the Tao. Somebody's mic is very noisy right now. Oh, okay, I think that was my side. Um, here, we had a little noise in the back.
the Tao Te Ching was the first, the very first uh, spiritual text I ever read. I, I saw it in Barnes and Noble, picked up a copy, and you could just flip to any page. And if you don't, if you if you just if you taste, if you really hear the words, and not try to get like, oh, that's circular logic, or oh, that's not, that doesn't make sense. It kind of like it, it evokes like a feeling of like understanding, like the, the like. I don't know. I'm not excited. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, the interesting thing is, is that I've taken quite a lot of time to use discursive uh, didactic um, uh, thought or con concepts to teach you about non-conceptual thinking. <laughs> and if I demonstrated it, you wouldn't get anything. <laughs> but that's what that's what. That's why I like the finger and the moon, uh, metaphor. The concepts are the finger pointing at the moon, but uh -huh. the the moon is not the finger that's pointing. What you're doing, you're pointing at the moon, and the moon is like, oh, there it is. Like that's the peace. Like that's the happiness. And like mm -hmm. all the thing is like, is like pointing. Uh -huh. Yeah. Stop. Stop sucking on the finger of the discursive <laughs> thought or the language. <laughs> So this is the, the whole point of then the Satipatthana is to bring these features together in the body so the, uh, and the mind and the feelings and, and look at their interrelationship so that we can begin to bring it into congruence, into a whole, into a unity so that the, the body is relaxed, the mind is relaxed, the feelings are relaxed and the smoke is sweet. That's the way that we would like to have it. That's the coolness. That's nirvana. It's when everything is in harmony. Rather than the way that we normally have is we have a feeling like fear. And now we've got to generate a whole bunch of thought about what can I do to get rid of that fear? And that's going to keep us more afraid. Shuts down even more. And the smoke is stinky. Dukkha. The objects of the mind are unwholesome. So that's actually the Satipatthana and Anapanasati is the method of the Buddha to practice this integration of this uh, four foundations of mindfulness. And we use the Eightfold Noble Path to do that. Sati, investigation, gladdening the mind or changing with right effort, unwholesome to wholesome thoughts, and then congratulating ourselves for the success of being able to do that. And so you can begin to see that the whole teaching of the Buddha just fits right together into a tiny little package. There's not much to it. But the results are nice. Just to be here now. It's so simple. Like if you told someone like, all this happiness could come from something like just look at your breath and like be here. Like it's so simple that like people <laughs> just write it off. They're like, oh, that that can't work. Like that's not going to make me happy. <laughs> uh -huh. But they don't try it. Yeah. And, the, and the problem is that they don't try it enough. And not only that, but it's actually um, that's not what's taught. 
what's taught in Western Buddhism is about striving and struggle and and attainments and uh, 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 milestones and whatnot like that, rather than in the much more correct way of looking at it is uh, uh, <clears throat> check your enthusiasm. <laughs> That's it. Your level of enthusiasm is the um, the whole point because it's going to be in a parabolic curve. Your enthusiasm is going to get very, very high for a while, and then it's going to just kind of drift off into, yeah, been there, done that. And so that's a way of measurement. If there's any measurement at all, measure yourself by the position of how is your enthusiasm. When you're when you're eager for the Dhamma, when you're enthusiastic about the Dhamma, when the only thing we're thinking about is the Dhamma, that's when you know that you're on the path or in the stream, in the flow. When the only thing that you care about is seeing Dhamma and everything and anything you're doing. Western Buddhism has all of these attainments and all of these features and all of these goals and all of these meditations so that you can remember past lives. And how much jhana do you need and when do you have the past life experience in, in or out of the jhana or after and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, you probably heard stories, Todd, about all of that stuff. Very much so, yeah. Yeah, and it's... It's funny because that was something that was never really part of the the you know the study that I had been doing before, and then that was kind of like a more recent within the past year. I started finding via YouTube and all these people talking about the jhanas and all these different attainments, and that became like, should I have been striving for that? Should I? And then then, but it just it, yeah, it it felt funny thing that that stuff generates a lot of clickbait. I mean, that is quick fake. It generates a lot of clicks. Yeah. Because, because it's hooking into things that people want. They want relief from their suffering. And like Scott has said, the, the real path is too easy. <laughs> yeah, Robert. So... You know, since Nibbana is cooling, wouldn't you say that the Dhamma actually makes you less enthusiastic in some sense and, and more just, you know, okay with everything? After you're over the hill, yes, but you have to get uh, over that pump through enthusiasm hmm. to come out of the dukkha. You have to have the enthusiasm to remember because that's what it keeps it from being a lot of effort. Your enthusiasm is the key to changing the right effort into uh, energetic. So the more enthusiasm that you add, the less effort that it takes. And now you're on a new role, you're on a new wheel of samsara, the, cho the one that you choose rather than this wheel of samsara that you were stuck with since childhood. Hmm. So yeah, you need that enthusiasm. You have to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. You because it's so good, it's so useful, so beneficial that you want to keep it going.
because without enthusiasm, students will get a little bit of stuff and then they'll stop calling and they'll stop practicing and then they'll crash. Then only one. So getting that enthusiasm going is a very important point. Yes, Damadas. Yeah, and it's like uh, it's like a really subtle enthusiasm, I'd say, because it's like you want to keep that piece going. It's not enthusiasm like like a little kid. It's I not, mean, it is like a little no, kid. Right, right. It's not exuberance. It's right. eagerness instead, or, or enthusiasm at that level. Yeah, yeah, quite subtle, quite quiet. Yeah, it's like if you're on vacation and you're sitting in a lawn chair just like getting a tan, you're enthusiastic about staying there, but it's a subtle type of enthusiasm. Like you don't want to leave vacation, you just want to stay there. Mm -hmm. And it, it just looks like you're resting though. <laughs> Good point. Good point. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I agree with Damadas, you know, I, I think it really is like very kind of relaxed enthusiasm in, in a sense. I mean, like when I call, it's not like Gosh, I should have mentioned that. I, I forgot yeah. to mention that. <laughs> yeah, it's not. And that was kind of my point why I asked that question, because it's not like yip, yip, hooray all the time. It's like, oh, this is nice. I want to keep this going. There are going <laughs> you know? to be moments of yippee kayo kaye. Absolutely, yeah. they're going to be that thrill of, wow, I can do this, or wow, this feels so good, or oh, no, how nice can this be? You're going to have those moments. Relish them. I also kind of like the subtle, Too though. good to be <laughs> true. The, the sense that this is too good. Mm. My cup overfloweth. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. That kind of poetry comes from that attitude. And Yipkayo Kaye got this life. My cup runneth over. And that's the attitude. How many of you think about all oh, my cups only half full? Or worse still, is half empty? You're talking, but your mic is muted. Oh, you can see it in the different jhanas too, because uh, second jhana is going to be like, oh, Oh my God, like, oh, it feels so good. Yeah. And you're like, ah. But then you get to third John, it's going to be more relaxed. It's gonna, still going to feel really good. But fourth John is going to be even more autonomous, uh, mm -hmm. but like still pristine. It's still pristinely peaceful. But it's not going to be that like second John that's like overflowing with it, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. But then you recognize that these jhanas are kind of like a dance step. That it's not March where you have to do this a lot and then you do this a lot and then you do this a lot and then you do this a lot. And when you find out you fall out of it and then you crash land back into suffering and whatnot. <laughs> like that. But rather uh, uh, think about the jhanas as tiptoe through the tulips. 
the sedans. Sometimes you're in the fourth jhana, sometimes you're in the third, sometimes you're in the second. It's okay. And when you're in and when you're in that state of wow, this is just too good. <laughs> this is too much. That's the second jhana. It is overflowing. It is overwhelming. Well, I don't know if the word overwhelming is the right word or not. But it's a lot. Too much. Overflow. Everything is just too good to be true. That would be the second job. The Buddha actually uses the term of... It's like a waterfall. It's like a, pardon? It's like a big, beautiful waterfall of like just like gushing water. Yes, that's another example. Have you ever sat in front of a, it's not, not really big ones. I mean, you wouldn't want to do this at the base of Niagara. Yeah. Being at the base of a waterfall and just having the water just gushing all over you. Yeah. That's yeah. like the second <laughs> drama. Just rushing all over. So, that's the enthusiasm that we're talking about, Robert. And there's a, there's a time for it. But then, as Damadas mentions, that there's also the time when that enthusiasm melts into, oh, this is too good to be true. But it doesn't have the exuberance to it now. It's very peaceful, very easy. And when the mind is in that state, then you can really see how these thoughts come up and bring us out of that state. So you can actually begin to see how perception works. And you're really, really peaceful. So guys, this has been another long talk. Parker, I think, in fact, that we can cut this one up. Pose we uh, the first forty minutes when we were talking about rebirth with Todd. I think that can be a separate uh, talk. I'm also thinking that the shorter talks get more views than the longer talks. That people won't click on a two-hour tape but a uh, video, but they'll click on a thirty-minute one. Uh. Been I've been um, clipping them up uh, and putting them on the Dhamma Dudes channel. That's a little bit, um, or that takes more time. Maybe uh, if we're editing uh, thoroughly, like eight or nine hours for a video, but we may get seven videos out of one Sangha call if there are a lot of questions. Um, so the Dhammarada Dhamma, it's easy to just upload the video. Um, but for ones where there are a lot of questions that especially might be useful for beginners, um, mm -hmm. those will be worthwhile to edit and put up all those questions in a form where uh, they're more approachable. Okay. Sounds good. All right, guys. Do we have anybody having any last things to say? Todd, did you get a load of it? Did you get that what was, you were looking for? Yeah, actually, this has been a really fantastic <laughs> talk straight through. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 That, it was kind of confirmation of, you know, mm. 
kind of the my my inclination, but but and I agree. Anytime that dropping the conceptualizations, dropping concepts, just being present is when things just feel there, open, good, selfless, great. And it's it's any of the thinking is really a deterrent and there's attraction from it. So, so thank you. Okay. Scott, what did you have to say? Oh, uh, thank you and uh, nice to see everyone. I'll see you guys next time. Okay. Comment awesome. Really glad to see you again. Thank you. Parker, as usual, thank you so much. You're such a, a joy to have. I really appreciate it. I think you now as a son. Your dad's going to have to move over and <laughs> make room for this daddy. <laughs> it's great to see you all. This is great. Okay, bye-bye, guys. Thanks bye. so much. Take care. We'll see Take you care. soon. Thanks again. Bye, bye everyone.